Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we take you behind the scenes and into the shoes of producers across all corners of the entertainment industry. As always, I am your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I am so grateful you're tuning in still here with me and doing this life thing. It's truly remarkable. I, I say this at every opening, but it baffles me every time that there's just so many of you wanting to hear me continue to blabber on. So <laughs> thank you, truly. Um, if you don't already, please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, wherever you get your podcasts. It's really cool to be bringing you this episode today of all days because it is November 21st, which is my favorite day out of the year because it is my birthday. And so this is likely the last episode of this year as I'm taking December off a much needed mental break from a very intense year full of ups and downs. Like for many of us, I had the good fortune of being very busy with production all year, but mama needs a break, y'all. Oof, it was... A wild one. So I'm looking forward to taking December to reset, recalibrate, come back next year stronger. One of my goals is to really be more consistent with my newsletter. I'm going to be having more offerings there for you guys. I've heard you loud and clear that one of the needs people seem to have is a space where we can talk where I can answer your questions, where I can help you navigate some of the challenges with your specific projects that you're having or some of the relationships you're navigating. Whatever the thing may be, I will be giving time and space for that. So please make sure you check out the newsletter because that's where I'll be announcing what the plans for that are. And if you don't already subscribe to the newsletter and you're going, what, you have a newsletter? How do I find this? Where do I go? You can go to angleonproducers.com. A window will pop up. You can also find it in the link tree link in the Angle on Producers IG. Or if all of those options fail, you can email us or DM us your email address saying, hey, I'd like to be added and we'll make sure that happens for you. Cool? Cool. I hope to see you there. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Tripa CEO Ben Odell. Ben grew up in the U.S. before packing up and moving to Colombia in his 20s. After finding success as a writer, his producerial pursuits led him back to the States, where he eventually went on to join forces with the legendary Mexican director and comedian Eugenio Derbez to create Tripas. Their film, Radical, which was the winner of the 2023 Sundance Festival Favorite Award, is now in theaters. Inspired by a Wired Magazine article by Joshua Davis, the film follows the sixth grade students at Jose Urbina Lopez Elementary in Mexico, who are among the worst performing students in the country. Everything changes when teacher Sergio Juarez, played by Eugenio, arrives with an outside-the-box approach, opening their minds and changing their hearts forever. I had the privilege of sitting in the audience at Sundance earlier this year and seeing this film. It was the opening night film and it was definitely my favorite. So it was very special for me to end my year talking to one of the producers of one of the films I started my year loving. Ben was really fascinating. I hope you get as much value from this conversation as I did. He really opened my eyes to, towards the end of the conversation, we talk a lot about what would compel anyone in today's day and age and market to break into Hollywood and try to be a producer, right? How would someone come into the industry nowadays? What would make them break through? And so he had really good advice for young up and coming producers. And what he thinks is a differentiator that you now need to have. I would be curious to hear once you listen to his advice, if you agree. So hit me up once you finish the episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your year. If I don't talk to you again, if you don't hear me in your ears again, that you have a wonderful rest of your 2023. Take time to rest and rejuvenate as well. And that you too come back suited up and ready for what 24 has to offer all of us. So without further ado, here's Ben. I'm so excited to have you on, Ben. I mean, I've been a fan of Tripas for a long time and a fan of the kind of work that you guys have been doing um, as a Latina. Obviously, you know a lot of people who have worked at the company throughout the many stages. And so it's really exciting to have you on to dive a little bit more into your journey, but also the company's journey and 
you know, how you started, where it is now, where it's going. And for me, it's actually personally very exciting because one of the first films I saw this year that I loved was Radical at Sundance. So when I was contacted about this, I was like, oh, what a great way to end the year. This is one of the last recordings I'm going to do with one of the producers of the films that I really loved and was impacted by earlier this year. So it's it's a treat to have you on. Yeah, well, thank you for for uh supporting it yeah we we that was a 10-year journey to get to uh to get to sundance (laughs) it always is it's important that people hear that because uh certainly isn't getting any easier out there for these important stories to find uh find their way to screen so well that's for sure so i always like to just start at the beginning of how you discovered your love for this industry and and then when you found that there was this role of a producer and that you found yourself called to do that job. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how you got on that path. Yes. Well, uh, you know, movies were always my passion from, uh, from the time I was a little kid. I think television, I've come too late uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain way. I didn't grow up watching TV. I grew up watching movies. But I started taking screenwriting classes when I was probably 16. And um, after college... I went to a small liberal arts college called St. Lawrence University. And uh, after college, I moved to New York City and I worked as a uh, production assistant uh, on a couple of movies. I worked as a runner slash production assistant for the Maisels, uh, Maisels, you know, Grey Gardens, uh, mm-hmm. kind of legendary documentary filmmakers. And that was 1991, 92. And I also worked as a uh, script reader for Art Linson, who was a big producer in Hollywood at the time. And he had a New York office that I read scripts from. So it was kind of like my liberal arts education on the film industry. I got to see sort of everything from different angles, but I really wanted to be a writer. Uh, I grew up with a Colombian family from the time I was very young and loved them and loved Colombia. I spent a lot of time there. And my father said to me, you know, if you look at the U.S. census right now and where it'll be in 2000, Latinos are going to be an important part of this country. And if you can become an expert in what they want to watch, you could, you know, potentially really have a career. For me, it wasn't really about that. I wasn't thinking as strategically as my father, but I just loved my Colombian family and I loved going to Colombia. And so he had talked to a friend of ours who had a, a commercial company in Colombia they were producing uh, 30 second spots. And I moved down to 92 to work for that person. And when I got there, there was no job because uh, the minister of energy had run off with all the money <laughs> to build a dam to keep the electricity on. So they were having like uh, blackouts every night from 6 to 9 p.m. There was no electricity wow. in the country. And so uh, hard to uh, sustain a commercial business when your primetime TV hours are non-existent. So the woman who had offered me the job left and I just stayed and I traveled the country and I took a job as a journalist. I worked as a teacher, uh, but I was really, I started to fall in love with Spanish language television, Colombian television, particularly in that time, because it was a little different, I think, from what the rest of Latin was doing. And I started watching and I didn't really speak Spanish, but I thought man, I, I could, maybe I could create a TV show here. And somehow I weaseled my way into onto a TV show called De Pies a Cabeza. I didn't really speak Spanish, but I wrote for them using a dictionary mostly and <laughs> a girlfriend who translated for me. And then from there, I ended up, you know, I quickly picked up Spanish. You know, this is pre-internet. There was really no Americans living in Colombia at the time. It's a pretty dangerous time to live there, frankly. And I just kind of picked up Spanish quickly and, and then uh, ended up selling a TV show when I was 24 called Fuego Verde. And we made 100 episodes in two years. It was actually, it was an hour uh, weekly format, but I wanted it to be individual closed episodes. It was kind of a, like a, uh, it was a suspense thriller kind of, and they they couldn't afford to do closed episodes. They said, you have to come up with a different model. And I said, what if every two episodes was one story? And I said, okay, that'll work. We can amortize the cost between two episodes. But I was thinking about it like feature films. So we were like making these little feature films and we wrote, you know, 50 feature films in the course of two years because there were no seasons. So it was just like getting in so quickly into storytelling and learning it as you're doing it you know, you'd write an episode. It was the highest rated show on television within six or seven episodes on the air. And they stopped reading the scripts so I could do whatever I wanted. And we started really experimenting with 
story, we would use flashbacks just to try it or voiceover or, you know, pay homage to one uh, movie or another and sort of use all these references. And we were learning. It was, I just, I was a showrunner and I had a couple writers and we just played with form a lot. It was fascinating. And the show just continued to do really well. And so it was just the fastest way into understanding of audiovisual storytelling. And then I created a bunch of more shows and uh, wrote a feature film at the end of 99. Um, and that feature film was called Golpe Estadio. It came out in Colombia. It was a political satire about the war in Colombia. It was a very dangerous time. I'd been getting death threats. Just just being there as an American was complicated. But like mm. telling a story about the war that was going on was just not a good idea. So yeah. somebody told me it was probably time to get out of there. Like the yeah. wrong people and, were and asking. And at that point, about. you had been there, what, eight years, if my math is correct? Eight years. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And did you... Um, feel like culturally because obviously having a Colombian family in America it can be a different experience than fully immersing yourself in Colombian culture was there any challenge for you in that front I mean language aside just culturally to really integrate well you know I'm a I'm a half Jew my last name's Odell used to be Odesky my father was pretty wealthy my mother lived a very middle class life so i kind of lived with my dad every other weekend i went to private schools i didn't feel like i fit in anywhere so i always felt like an outsider and this colombian family was the first time i ever felt part of something hmm. and what i what i realized later and i feel like a lot of people that are storytellers they sort of don't fit in one place or another and they're always kind of observing somehow from the outside and i think it shapes a certain kind of narrative which is when you always feel like an outsider you're as a storyteller, I think our instincts, or even as just a human being, are to find the commonalities that connect all of us, you know, because you don't feel like you connect culturally. So you have to connect over common interests or just being human. And so that has always sort of been my North Star for storytelling. I don't think I realized this at the time, right. but is is a real sensitivity to finding those kind of universal truths in, in story. Hmm. So when I moved to Colombia, I think it was, you know, I very quickly realized I had to become attuned to the sensibilities of the marketplace. And so when I was working with other writers, I had to filter often the, the stories I was telling through them. You know, what's funny to a Colombian isn't funny to a, you know, a white dude from Pennsylvania or, you know, a black person from Chicago or a French person. So, you you, you know, to, to understand those sensibilities, you had to sort of work with people that come from that place. I think that skill set has been the thing that's carried me through my entire career. I, again, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, because I've made movies all over Latin America and the U.S. Hispanic audience, it's like a country unto itself. Mm -hmm. 60 million people, very diverse. You know, how do you make content for them? You have to be very sensitive to it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I think I was born that way. I was wired that way. I always felt that way. I feel like the people I connect to all are outsiders. They all tend to come from two different places. You know, they were born in the U.S., but their parents are immigrants or they were born in Nicaragua and moved here when they were 10. And yep. They're not, not from there, not from here. Those are my people. I mean, and I, I connect to people like that all the time for those reasons. So that that has been the sort of skill set that I've carried with me. And so then after eight years, you say, all right, it's finally time to return to the U.S. And do you go back to New York or do you settle in L.A.? How do you decide where to go from there? Well, so I, what I, I I got hired, the the movie that we made, Gold Vestalia, was made by this Italian producer. And he wanted me to write a new screenplay for him. So I flew to Rome and I spent a week with him and he said to me, every day you come in and you pitch me your ideas uh, for this story and then go off and work on it and then come back. And I was like, is this how it's done? This seems really weird, but OK. Uh, so I kind of go off and sit in my hotel room and think about the story and come back to him and pitch. And he hated all my ideas, everything. He hated all of them. <laughs> and then we would go to lunch and he would tell me his life story. And in telling me his life story, I was like, I don't think this guy's actually very qualified to be a producer. And then it sort of dawned on me that, you know, rather than work for him, why not do what he does? You know, why not take the job? It seems like more, uh, you know, uh, taking having that uh, position of authority where I could decide what a good idea was. You know, in hindsight, you know, it's, when you're a producer, you're still serving the studio head or the financier. I mean, we're always under the thumb of somebody. Right. But that was my instinct for going to producing. And so I moved back to the U.S. I applied to film school. I went to Columbia University. Um, I liked their program. 
first of all, because I didn't have to take the GREs because I never wanted to take one of those tests again. <laughs> um, now, none of them make you take it. But at the time, it was one of the few. And uh, they had a like a liberal arts sort of approach. So the first year you're taking writing, directing, theory, history. And then in the second year, you sort of declared your concentration. So I got to really and I thought that, it, 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 again, so vital. I mean, everything I learned in acting class in directing, I use as a producer. Yeah, because I ultimately, you know, what I feel like producers, I would say producer like water. There's certain things that every producer has to do. Like I would say the the baseline for any producer who's successful is they can will things into existence. Like some of them are have good taste, some don't, some understand story, some don't. But everybody who makes it as a producer has that ability. Somehow I'm going to will this thing that nobody wants to make right now into existence. That stubbornness, that chutzpah, whatever it is, I think is a fundamental uh, piece of uh, a producer's DNA. But the other piece is, you know, I, I always say producer like water, like you have to fill in the cracks. You know, every every production, there's always some weakness, some problem, some issue, and sometimes they're creative. And so, you know, the fact that I know how to direct, I don't think I'm a fantastic director. I think I'm a mediocre director. I'm a mediocre writer, even though I did it for 10 years. I'm a mediocre editor because I was trained as an editor as well at, at the Maisels, but I understand it. And I understand what a good director does. And, and when somebody's not doing it well, I often have to step in, in some way. And, you know, I've, I've had, you know, to force directors to do shot lists when they don't want to. And then when they don't work, I, you know, I have to work through the sit down with them and do the shot list with them or whatever the situation is, or, you know, I had a d director once just hand in his cut and say, okay, I'm done. Mm. And he, it was the end of his director's cut. But normally it's like you hand in your director's cut, you get notes and you keep going. He had another movie. He's like, I'm done. And the movie wasn't even halfway there. Mm. I spent three more months in the editing room. Uh, so I do think it's beyond the obviousness of, of having to be able to develop content, uh, scripts, you know, having those other abilities is really, really helpful. So C Columbia was great for that. What do you think is a, how would you say that your definition then of producing has evolved from when you started to where you are now, obviously so many years later, and what are the misconceptions you think people still have about what producers are and what they do that you wish we could dispel once and for all? Well, I would say a lot of the misperceptions are actually tied to the fact that there are a lot of people that shouldn't be producing who are. Mm. Say it again for the people in the back. Please. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need a license uh, to have children or to produce movies. And there should, you should have one for both because I don't <laughs> think everyone's qualified to have children either. So, you know, uh, look, I, I think that some people buy their way into the producing position. Some people leverage their way into a credit. You know, I think the PGA mark has helped somewhat with that, although not entirely. Uh, I've had situations where a financier will come and say, but I want to produce a credit and you have to do everything humanly possible to get me the PGA market. What are you going to do if they're going to write you a check? I know. But, you know, the, 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 the truth is, I think, I think good producing, I think there are different kinds of producers. And I think they're really talented producers that do different things. So it's hard to pin it down. You know, some are really, really good at finding material, packaging it and putting it out in the world. Somebody else is probably going to spend all the time on set, keeping an eye on it and sort of seeing it all the way through. There are other producers that are really good at being sort of on the ground, ground and hands-on. Maybe they come out of line producing. So they're much more into the nuts and bolts. There are other producers that are just business people that know how to put together financing and create sort of spaces where movies can be made. I don't think any of them are necessarily less qualified than others as long as they sort of stay in their lane at the end of the day oftentimes we all share a credit on the same movie even though we did very different things but um yeah i would i mean i always say i think the only thing that all producers have in common is that ability to will things into existence everything else i think depends on the producer themselves but you don't think there's one producer or if it's ever possible for one person to exhibit all of those things. One person who's excellent in packaging and financing, who also knows nuts and bolts because they've had an LP background, who also is really good at the business side of things and just is like a full, the full package, a triple threat, if you will, you know, um, producing has slowly become so compartmentalized. But when you look at the history of how producing began and how that role came to 
be need needed to exist was because you had one person who had all these skill sets who was with the project from cradle to the grave and now it's in a way compartmentalized which is great in some ways you you have more jobs for certain people but it's also diluted I think the value of what a single producer who is leading the charge and making sure you're getting to the finish line, like leading the troops, right? Um, who that person actually is on any given project. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there are producers that I really admire um, who do have uh, all those skills. I also think there's a huge difference between independent and studio, you know, studio producers or Hollywood producers. I don't know what Hollywood is. Hollywood's not a thing. But what would you say is the biggest difference between the two? Well, I mean, you know, in the studio system, you're dealing with a structure that's in place that and again, it's all changing so quickly. But, you know, there's an infrastructure and a demand for a certain amount of content. I think most producers that have succeeded in Hollywood tend to have come out of the system in some way, whether they, you know, just grew up as assistants and kind of worked their way up or they were agents or they were, you know, executives who understand the sort of the rules of of Hollywood. And I think you have to there's so much about that job, which is about relationships and it's about diplomacy and it's about, I, it, what was it? Uh, what's his name the kid, from the kid, the kid stays in the picture. Um, what, what's the name of the producer? Yeah. Um, Liking on his name. Let's see. Uh, me too. Legendary. Anyway, he, um, you know, who, who greenlit the Godfather and yada, yada, but he, he, you know, he would say, you know, we're Robert, not, Robert Evans. We're de- Robert Evans. Yes. Correct. We are, you know, we're dependent producers. We're dependent on everybody, you know, and I think the dependencies are different when you're in the studio system. You're also feeding the demands of the system. What what are the what are the platforms and the studios looking for specifically? I think independent producers tend to create things in the spaces that nobody is necessarily nobody's asking for those movies. You're creating things that that would never, that they kind of live outside of the sort of the system and the genres that people want. And it's so much more challenging. I mean, I think independent producing, you have no infrastructure in independent producing. So, you know, when you're a studio producer, you set up your movie, it gets greenlit. You have a whole team of people at the studio who are, you know, running your budgets and keeping an eye on things. You have your VFX specialists, you have all these, all these people already in place. And you're just there to make sure that trains are running on time. It, I'm not saying it's not a it's a it's a very hard job in a lot of ways, and the good ones are great at it. But but when you're independent, you have none of that infrastructure. You have none of that support. You're doing everything. Yes. Um, and uh, it's it's a lot harder. And the truth is, I think it's is as hard or harder to make a movie for a million dollars as it is to make it for fifty. When you're making it inside the studio and you have all this other support. It's just a different, it's a different kind of job. I think it's, it's really about managing personalities and egos. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas independent producing is just. It's all of it. It's pushing you're, the rock yeah, up the hill. I mean, you're, it's everything. You're pushing yeah. a rock uphill. And if you're lucky enough to get it uphill and people take notice and applaud that your rock is up at the top of the hill, uh, you know, sometimes it takes decades for things to make it to the top of that hill. I think what. What's bumping for me as someone who's come up as an independent producer is we're at this moment of injunction in the business where the business model has changed so drastically where it was that you could go make a movie for a million, couple million, maybe take it to a market, sell it and have a financial upside that could actually set you up through back end. That model no longer really exists because no one's really buying incredible films at, at these markets, right? Like you're saying, no one's asking for these films. But oftentimes, these are the films that set up a lot of filmmakers to be able to enter the studio system. They are like independent producers, I feel like are scouts who are taking the gamble early on and are developing these talents early on. And oftentimes, some of those people get to ride off into the sunset of Mar- the, into the arms of Marvel, but the producers themselves are left behind. And with all of the wonderful momentum that has been happening in Hollywood with the strikes and people getting, um, you know, fair pay and everything that uh, SAG and obviously the writers have gotten, it's so exciting for them. But 
it's it, that no one is talking about the fact that independent producers are getting still left behind because we have no protections, we have no union. It's not a sustainable career path. And it was at some point. I really think it 20 years ago, you could actually have a couple indie hits, take a couple gambles and, and launch yourself, not just your filmmaker. And now it feels like everyone I really know and admire as an independent producer is having to pivot and go in-house, take jobs, become a part of the system because it's no longer sustainable for any of us to create longevity in the business. And that breaks my heart because so many of the movies that got me into the game, a lot of people that I know and respect into the game are movies made outside of the system. And I, I just... I am so curious to see how things after the strikes, how the dust is going to settle. But the model itself has inherently changed. The business is constantly evolving, but I think it, it's never had to evolve in this dire way, I, I feel. And I haven't been here long enough. You know, some people have obviously preceded me by many generations, but I, I just, it just boggles my mind and it makes me genuinely concerned on behalf of other independent producers who I've had the, priv you know, the privilege of talking to on the show. How is the future for us going to look? What is the model? Who is looking out for our best interests? The people that are willing everything into existence but can't will sustainability for themselves into existence. It's ironic. Yeah, it is ironic. And I will say, when I, when I was saying that independent, they make movies that nobody's asking for, those often are the movies that we most need and break yes. the ground and where the originality exists mm -hmm. and it does that also feeds Hollywood. So when you cut that off and everything becomes a, 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 a copy of a copy of a copy, a spinoff of a, of a remake of a, you know, it just, um, you know, it starts to, the whole system starts to eat itself. But yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I certainly felt it. I mean, I remember, you know, I made a movie in 2007 with the same director who made Radical. We were right out of film school. It was my second feature. We made it for 700 and 700K and change, you know, with, with our fingernails, con las uñas. And <laughs> we won the grand jury prize at Sundance. And, you know, I remember standing up on the uh, scenario, they took a picture of the director and I was standing right behind him. And back in the old days in 2007, you know, it was on the cover of every newspaper around the world. And, and I was standing there like holding my hand under my chin. And I remember exactly what I was thinking in that moment, which was, how is my life going to change? I just won, like for me, the North Star of North Stars was a grand jury prize at Sunday. So I said, how is my life going to change? And the answer, which I found out, you know, over time uh, was not very much, uh, you know, I think in imperceptible ways, it was like, one slight um, notch in the belt that says, okay, maybe this person has taste and, you know, can knows how to do these things that made it a little easier to market myself for the next one. But financially, I didn't make any money on that movie. And this was 2007, right? I mean, 2007 was a, the market crashed, the, the economy crashed. And right as we went to Sundance, it was like nobody was buying movies. Our movie was in defense of, I guess, other independent movies at the time that did better our movie was not a commercial movie i mean it was it was precisely the kind of movie that sundance celebrates because mm -hmm. it was a dark thriller with an ending that would rip your heart out mm -hmm. but but it was just financially so and and i said at that point as i kind of looked at i you know i grew up in the i was born in 69 so i grew up when the popcorn movie started you know i went i saw star wars in the theater i saw jaws in the theater and those were movies that changed the industry and I didn't come to independent movies until I was in my uh, late teens and early 20s and then foreign films. So I kind of had this breath of I loved them. I loved George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and I loved commercial movies. And I just said at that point, I can love independent movies. I don't have to make them because I just couldn't see a path forward having had that experience, winning the most important festival for independent movies you can win and, and it's not bearing the fruit that I expected it to. So then how did you pivot? So it's 2007. Now at this point, you've been in LA just to kind of bring us back to where you are in your journey. You, you know, you obviously start producing films, you break into the US market with success, and then you get to Sundance. What do you do next? Well, so I was I was actually I was coming right out of film school. I produced a little $200,000 movie called Confess, which, you know, we sold it. I think it broke even finally uh, once once we got it out there. But then we won Sundance. Between those two movies, I got hired 
by a guy named Jim McNamara who had run Telemundo and sold it to NBC for you know three billion dollars, and had then made a deal with Lionsgate to make movies in Spanish. And so he called me up because the TV shows I'd written in Colombia in the 90s, he would buy them for Televisa. And for whatever reason, he had this instinct. He tracked me down. I happened, I mean, I was a writer when he, you know, he was seeing my names as a writer, but I'd gone to film school. I decided to become a producer. I was focused on the U.S. Hispanic and Latin American markets. I had Spanish language movies in development, but development, thinking about this market, but commercial movies, not the art house ones like the one that won Sundance, which was Spanish language. Um, and I went to work for him and I moved to Florida. I didn't move to LA until long after that. And we had a deal at Lionsgate, but we were sort of producing out of Latin America. So it was easier to be in Miami. And uh, we started making commercial, low budget commercial Spanish language movies. We made a movie called Ladron Que Roba Ladron, which was a great little movie. We made it for a million and a half. It made about $8 million. We did a movie called La Mujer de Mi Hermano, which we actually sort of acquired in post and put some money into and then finished, um, and a few others. And we put them out in the theaters and, you know, we were doing okay, but Jim's Jim's whole premise was there's this whole audience that was being underserved. And in the course of making a bunch of movies, that company, which was called Panamax, merged with Televisa and Lionsgate to form Pantaleon, Panamax, Televisa, Lionsgate. And I moved to LA to run production for that company. That was around 2010. And so we started releasing movies in Spanish, acquiring them, producing some, co-producing. And we had released probably like maybe 20, 20 or 30 movies when Eugenio Derbez, who I'd known for years, directed and starred in Instructions Not Included, which was this little $5 million movie. Wonderful film for those that have not seen it. They should run to it. It's a beautiful film. He was, you know, Eugenio was the biggest comedian in Mexico. He had grown an audience in the U.S. because all his shows had played on Univision. He had also grown an, uh, an audience in Central America and most of, La of, of South America as well with his shows. So he didn't know how big his shows had been until that movie came out. And this little $5 million movie makes $100 million. And, you know, it's still the highest grossing Spanish language movie ever. And so off the success of that movie... Uh, oh, and I started our company, which was nine and a half years ago, three plus. Wow. What is it about you and Eugenio that made you guys a good fit? That still makes you a good fit, obviously. It's been almost a decade. Congrats. Um, I mean, we were friends from the minute we met. We met in 2006. I put him in a ton of movies. He was actually in our movie that won Sundance in two, 2007. Mm. That's the sort of I irony that he had a small role because he was a comedian. And this was a drama, but he really desperately wanted to do drama. And we had become friends. We put him in that movie. And then 16 years later, we hired Chris to direct a movie that Eugenio was starring in, where we had the ability and the authority to hire who we wanted for that movie. And we hired him and he hadn't done a movie, a theatrical movie in all that time. Mm -hmm. But um, <clears throat> to your, answer your question, first of all, we, we just love each other as people. I mean, he's full of humanity. He's a sweet human being. He's very creative. We sort of love the same movies. Like I can, I, I can read a script now and give notes on his behalf. He doesn't even have to read it. I, I literally know exactly what he's looking for and where he's going to respond. But I think we always had that affinity towards each other. And I think we, you know, we both wanted to make movies in our sort of our log line for our company is humor, heart and humanity. And we always say, you know, Anything we make has to have two of the three of those mm -hmm. in order for us to make them. So, you know, uh, humor and heart is like a broad comedy, but but it still has to have heart, you know, and heart and humanity would be like what Radical is or Aristotle and Dante. Which is also great. Congrats. Thanks. So so I think it was kind of we, we, we just had a shared sensibility to begin with. And it, what's funny is like I always loved working in Spanish. I love working, focusing on the U.S. Latino market because it feels more interesting to me to tell stories that I feel like haven't been told in that world. It's like, I think everything, you know, if you look at stories about white people in America, it feels like every version of those stories have been told. There's so many, Radical is a perfect example of a story like, you know, we've seen the teacher story done before, 
but not a true story in Mexico, in Spanish, or in that world. You just never seen that. And that was exciting to me. I think Eugenio on this at the same time is more excited by the Hollywood of, of, of it all and like going and doing movies in English. And it took me a while. When we started our company, I said, all right, what are we going to do first? And he said, well, the first thing is I want to work in English. And I said, you just made a movie that made $100 million in Spanish. There's clearly a demand. Let's do a couple more of those. And then we don't have to work again. And we'll do whatever we want after that. He's like, that's not why I came here, which I really admired in him. Like he wasn't driven by money. He could have just chased that. Yeah. And instead he, he decided to, you know, forge his own path. So we had to, you know, focus on how to do movies in English first. But I think in a weird way, you know, we bring such different sensibilities. And I think I bring like as an outsider gringo in love with all Latin cultures. There's so many, it's not one thing. Right. And he, he is the, the, the Mexican coming into the U S like those blending sensibilities. That's where, where a show like Acapulco comes from, which is a blending of those things or the ballet where it's also a blending or overboard. There is a sort of merging of those two cultures in a way that I think is also reflective of who we are. It's not everything we do, but I think a lot of things kind of come in the door like that because that's how we sort of build them. Yeah. And so, you know, given the the market, I mean, UCLA does their diversity report every year and the number and the data never seems to really improve. It's staggering. Even just recently, the, the numbers they released are just so honestly depressing. It makes me wonder why anyone would look at that data and go, I want to break into Hollywood or I want to be a part of making and telling these stories. And so clearly you guys have figured out a model that is sustainable and scalable because you've been doing this for almost a decade. So what what is it that how have you guys scaled the company and how does this data impact the way if it does at all impact the way that you approach the business decisions that you're making i mean look i always say uh, new year same data right it's mm -hmm. it never changes no look it, it definitely it impacts us in a lot of ways when i was at pantaleon the thing that i observed after we had released i don't know 70 80 films is but it's not that I, we all know this, you know this, I know this, Any anybody who is a Latino or lives amongst Latinos knows this. There's no such thing as a Latino. It's not a thing. It's a, it's a concept. Yeah. It's a moniker that does not, it's, yeah, it's a loose affiliation of people, right? So they're not going to all go watch the same show. My kids, my wife's Colombian, my kids are Latino. They don't identify that way. They don't think that way. They're very Colombian. They're very American. So you can't make things for them. What I think, make things that they will, by identity, go and see. And that's a challenge that I think Hollywood keeps getting wrong. And because everybody thinks, oh, if I make this Latino thing, the Latinos will come. And then they don't come. They, they then give up on it. Often those things aren't very well made. They're misconceived. They're, they're, they're not really being made by the people that actually understand mm -hmm. the market. Mm -hmm i.e. Latinos. And it 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 ends up being a cycle of failure. I don't know any, I mean, our our model was simple. When I when I observed it all, I said, because there's no such thing as a Latino, having a company that makes Latino content to at least to get started is going to be very challenging. We I need a lightning rod. You need a lightning rod. And I I saw it, I always use this example, but you know, Ricky Martin when he sang La Vida Loca, right? At the World Cup in 98, I think it was. And he you know, the world went nuts. The Latinos all went, the guy from Menudo, like, who, you know, <laughs> yeah, what's the big deal? Yeah. But everyone else was like, who's this sexy Ricky Martin guy, right? It was like, and then I, I saw the Latino community when the rest of the world went crazy, they kind of went, okay, he's one of us. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think the, and, and, and the point is like, you need a lightning rod. I feel like, you know, J-Lo is a lightning rod you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda is a lightning rod from a different vector, more as a creator, but, but you need a lightning rod because the lightning rod brings an audience. That audience tends to skew very Latino, but it isn't exclusively Latino. You know, uh, Gina Rodriguez, she's a lightning rod. She, Jane the Virgin, over-indexed Latino, but that was 30% of the audience. It wasn't mm -hmm. 50, 70, and clearly not 100. So, her audience wasn't exclusively Latino either, right? And my point is, that's what I felt like you needed to build a company. So when Eugenio, when Instructions Not Included, did what it did, you know, we got together and 
talked about, you know, what are your dreams? And I sort of laid out what I thought we could do. I said, if you right now, it, you have a six month window to take advantage of the success of that movie, and then everyone will forget about it. But if we go and build this business right now today, I think we can build it into something bigger. And eventually, it can be bigger than you. And it can be a legacy for you. And we can start to help the next generations of filmmakers. But first, we have to make you a success in the US. And that was, you know, a, a, an agent once said to me, he's like, in Hollywood, you only have to do something twice to be considered an expert. And I said, well, does instruction not include a count? You know, we're just starting the company. He's like, no, it doesn't count. You gotta, you gotta have two hits, two movies, two hits with Eugenio in them. And then everyone will believe it's not a fluke. Because they, I, you know, we went around town to try to make a deal. And we, we had one offer for a deal, and that was at Pantheon, where I was working. They wanted him to continue to make movies mm -hmm. for them at Lionsgate. But Universal, everybody said, bring us a movie. But nobody said, hey, we'll do a first look with you and give you some overhead to start your company. And the problem is that they all looked at Ohenio and said, "This is he can't repeat this. He's not, because they didn't know he had a 30-year career of having the biggest hits on television. Mm -hmm. And even like when he would do theater, he'd have the biggest hits in Mexico. Like he was, he was like Midas with everything he did. So, so we had to sort of build from him and, and then he said he wanted to do things in English. So we had to figure out how to make movies in English that his audience that were, you know, bilingual and Spanish dominant, were going to go see really the core of his audience is Spanish dominant. So once we figured that out, we made how to be a Latin lover and overboard and they were, you know, Overboard made $100 million at the box office as well. And it wasn't an expensive movie. We did it for 17. So those were, you know, big enough hits. And and Latin Lover was, we made for 11. And it made 63 or 65. So, so at that point, with the success of those two movies, we were able to then start to expand the business. And then, you know, right about, that was, you know, seven years ago, six years ago, the Spanish language TV business started to become interesting. Right in a way that it never, Eugenio didn't think he'd ever go back to Spanish language TV. But the budgets were getting bigger. Netflix had gone into Mexico. Amazon was in Mexico. Right. So we started doing things with Amazon and we have, you know, two of their biggest shows now in Latin America. We started to expand there. So we started to really expand into Spanish. And so where we are today is that we do, we do TV, we do movies, we do unscripted, we do scripted, we have shiny floor, we have DocuFollow, we just did a documentary last year, we have another one in the works, we do animation, and we do it in English and we do it in Spanish. And having that portfolio, the reason we were able to get through knock on wood, the strikes was because we had a lot of content in Spanish that was not under a SAG or a Writers Guild deal mm -hmm. um, that we were able to continue making. We got hit. It wasn't that we we didn't have the year we would have, right. but we were able to continue to be profitable and keep going because of the the diversity of content. Well, and of a, of a portfolio, right? It seems like that's the name of the game these days is you have to have multiple sources from multiple places. And because you guys had already built a foundation on that, it's a no brainer that you would continue to build that, build that model further and just invest where things are continuing, the plates that are continuing to spin, regardless of the challenges that the US market is facing, which is brilliant. Not a lot of people, not a lot of companies can say that. Um, but I find it interesting that like when your dad said 20 years ago, 30 years ago now at this point, oh, the Latinos are going to, they're coming, their numbers, the census, like everyone's been predicting this for so long and the data is there empirically. Um, but it's still, when we look at these reports, it's like we are still failing <laughs> this community of, of filmmaker, of, of film goers and, and story, story lovers that are not finding themselves seen in these stories, you know? And I think one of the, the things I find fascinating from the, the report is that the Latino viewer is one of the most diverse viewers in terms of their taste. They actually watch everything under the sun. So to try to put that in a box and say, okay, this is the kind of content we got to make to capture that audience is a fool's errand, really. But I, I don't know how anyone replicates lightning rods, like you're saying, like, it, it seems like it's, we get one every maybe decade or every five years, and it's still not enough to propel the movement forward and bring up a lot more people with us, you know, so that the impact can be bigger so that these numbers can actually be somewhat impressive as opposed to as big as the Latino community keeps getting in the US, the numbers somehow are going backwards, you know? Um, and that part is is 
curious. And everyone I know who's Latino is constantly working on how do we find a solution for this this problem that we have inherently in Hollywood, you know? Well, the question, the question, the, the, the most important question to answer, to answer is, is the problem for us, the filmmakers, or is the problem for the audience? I do think it's a problem for an audience that they're not seeing themselves. I think that has a, it has a profound impact. I remember watching uh, Cobra Kai with my kids you know, we don't speak English at home and, you know, they're bilingual. We live in this very white neighborhood that my wife wanted to live in, I, I will say. So I, I, I can't take full and lovely neighborhood, not, not, no knock on it, but they, their identities were sort of buried here. And then we were watching Cobra Kai and they seeing this kid who's bilingual and his mom speaks to him in Spanish. And, and I looked at him and I said, how does it feel to see yourselves, you know, on television? And they kind of, they, they, you could see they sort of felt proud. They, I don't think they made that connection until I made it for them, but I think they were sensing it. Mm. That's really important. The question is, is the audience in a real way demanding it? Because the problem is that we see that Latinos over-index on movies already, right? They're going. I, and again, this is my business. This is, so I, I don't, nothing I'm saying makes i don't take this i'm not saying this defensively i'm saying this with a certain amount of sadness but there is a reality which is latinos are consuming an enormous amount of content it's not like you're saying this whole market is being underserved the reason why eugenio's movie made 100 million dollars is because he reached a part when you look at 60 million people that are under this latino umbrella there's parts of that 60 million that are not being served and especially those that are closest to their immigrant roots are the least served and the ones that are still speaking Spanish at home. It was very intentional when we made how to be a Latin lover and overboard that there would be Spanish in the movie, not because we were pandering to them, but because we wanted to do it in a way that organically the movies would feel like people who are, Latino in this country that live close to that immigrant experience live, which is that you, some part of your life is in Spanish, period. You know, my, my life is that way. My wife, mm -hmm. anybody I know, Eugenio, he goes home every day to his wife and child. They speak Spanish at home. So I think the reason why that movie did so well is because he was actually speaking to the Spanish dominant and the bilingual, but the bilingual that sort of leans towards their parents and grandparents who are Spanish speaking, they didn't have anything they could hang on to. And so it spoke to them. When we talk about the acculturated Latino, I, you know, my experience of being out talking to people is they almost uh, oftentimes, like if something feels too Latino, they reject it. They want to be part of the mainstream. So when you do something like Wednesday or you do something like The Last of Us, which is just mainstream content with a little something. I mean, even with The Last of Us, it's barely at something. But, you know, you got Pedro Pascal and his, his daughter is, is uh, a mixed race. And, you know, there's a couple references when he finds his brother. I think they say a few things in Spanish. And that's the extent of it. But I think that what it really says when you see a show like that is Latinos are part of the mainstream. Here's the coolest show on television and the lead is Latino. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a different, you know, there's two sort of aspirational stories you can tell. You can tell A Million Miles Away, which is literally an aspirational story about a f farm worker, uh, child of farm workers who becomes an astronaut. Or the other form of aspirational is The Last of Us, where Pedro Pascal gets to play the lead in the coolest show on television. And those are both aspirational in different ways. I think we need to do more of the the, the latter I don't mean that we need to do less of, we just need more of the other one. Right. We need to keep making the aspirational stories. I think people want them, but we also need that other kind of aspiration, which is just to say, Latinos are part of this. They are the mainstream. You know, whenever somebody says to me, and I mean, I would say I'm the angriest white guy. When, when, when we get into these rooms and somebody's like, well, this is really not, a, it's not a Latin thing. It's a mainstream thing. And I'm like, listen, motherfucker, if you want the mainstream, you have to have the Latino. You don't, you don't have the mainstream. You're not going to get your, you're not going to get your uh, president elected if you don't have the Latinos and you're not going to get your grosses at the box office. You're not going to get your numbers on television if you're not bringing that audience into, 
And so I, I think that's where we're most failing. And I'm seeing, honestly, it, it has changed. It has gotten a little better. You know, you have uh, Ramon Rodriguez starring in uh, Trent, uh, what, I forgot the last name of that show. It's actually pretty good. You, you know, you have Magnum P.I. You have, mm -hmm. there's, it's starting to happen a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's way more than it used to be. But I think, you know, when you do something like, uh, you know, Dora, and it's like, it's an all Latin cast. And it's, I think the Latinos run the other way mostly yeah. it's just like ah you're trying to sell this to me it's trying too hard almost right and that's not who i am i'm an american i'm a, i'm i'm part of a i don't live in a latino bubble that's what i hear over and over again i don't live in a latino bubble my neighbors friends girlfriends boyfriends not everybody in my world is latino yeah and you need to feel like you're part of this country when you're making things in English. i think uh this fool on hulu was a show re of recent times that i think did a really good job at showing of inherently Latino uh, family through these really interesting lenses of characters that I don't think we've seen before that I found very refreshing. And as an immigrant, I'm, I'm from Brazil, so it's like another layer of Latinidad and dealing with that whole thing. But a lot of the stories where I see myself are not inherently Latino. Like I think of like um, Minari and I think of The Farewell and these stories that are just about this this cultural experience that I don't necessarily have to have to still fully see myself reflected in that in that journey, right? And I think it's also just like you said, it's just really at its core telling a great story that isn't about let's hit the boxes of what we think we need. Past Lives is another film of this year that I'm like, I, I, it's not about the immigrant experience, but but it is inherently without having it to be in your face. And I really identify with those stories where. I can fully be seen in someone else's experience, but it isn't about my own experience. And I find when that that hybrid is somehow, uh, when someone captures that properly, I think people generally really show up for it and respond to it. And, and at least that's what I gravitate towards. And those are the stories that I think propel the conversation forward beyond just the Latino conversation, but just why these stories of other people's experiences, to your point earlier, are so important. We haven't seen it in this way before. This feeling of being an outsider and finding the sort of universal truths and the, you know, your experience as a Brazilian American, it speaks to that same need to find the connection. Um, and what I feel like sometimes happens and, uh, you know, is that the focus on Latino content is around identity. And I don't think, while it's important, and it's not its not that it's not important, it's not entertaining, and it's not necessarily relatable, you know? So if you start with relatable ideas, let the identity politics, the identities, let them live underneath. There can, there can be very smart things happening underneath a story. Yeah. And we try to do it with the valet or overboard. You know, you can say what you want about, you know, we got hammered on overboard by the critics, I think unfairly. But, you know, the truth of the matter is it's a story where, you know, my favorite scene in that movie is when the rich Mexicans show up, you know, at Anna Ferris's house and they feel extremely uncomfortable about, around these poor white people. You know, we were just shifting the conversation in a direction that we hadn't seen it before. And though there's many ways that you can sort of play with identity and identity politics underneath something that ultimately has to start out being universal and human. And that's where I think the failure so often happens and we have to get better at it. No, absolutely. And we have a couple more minutes. We have a few more questions for you before we wrap up. So given everything, you know, what advice would you have for anyone looking to start a company given the current market, the current landscape of the world and of the industry? What advice do you have looking for someone, for someone who looks to what you've built and is listening and is like, I wanna build something like that and then who also wants to be a producer? Maybe the two are intertwined or they're mutually exclusive, but what would be your advice? I mean, look, I think, first of all, you've got to want it more than anything in your life because it's so hard, as you well know. And if it's not something you have to do, you probably won't do it. So you only you can answer that question. But I think when people don't have to, at some point, they will realize they're going to go do something else. Um, so it starts with that. And secondly, in terms of starting today, you have to be very attentive to the changes in the marketplace. You have to look at how audiences are consuming content as a producer, as a filmmaker, or as a storyteller, you can just tell the stories that you want and care about. And if you're lucky enough that they connect to audiences 
or financiers first and then the audience is great. But as a producer, I think you do have to be aware of audience and how it's changing. And the first thing I look at is Gen Z and Gen Alpha and how much content they're consuming. It's a big problem. So if you're saying, I want to get into content and you're 25, I want to start a production company or 30 years old, projecting into the future, how are you getting that audience to see your content? Because that's what you're going to have to, you know, sustain off of. Mm -hmm. And look at the, the theatrical market. It's shrinking every day. It's becoming what Broadway became, the theater, right? It's like big kind of loud IP. You know, there has to be some sort of preconceived understanding of what the content is. So I, I think it, it starts there. I don't know the answer to that. We're studying it a lot in my company. And I actually, I, I took all of our youngest employees and they formed a group, which is called Trespasser. And it is targeting they are charged with finding content that would be appealing to Gen Z and to and to Gen Alpha eventually. Because I, I and, and it, part of that isn't just finding the content. It's like really understanding what they're watching and how they're watching. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's super vital right now is like you have to understand social media. You cannot be a producer today and not understand the importance of social media and the way things are marketed and connecting to audience. Yeah. Um, I'm no expert, but I, I'm trying to get better at it every day because it's, but it's just, if you don't have the marketing piece, you're screwed. And I, I look at the way things are marketed. It's so backward and people don't under, and it's got to get better. And so as a producer, if you can get better at that piece of it, where you're literally thinking about, you know, how does this thing live in social media? As before you even greenlight, I've now told my my executives, like, as part of you bring in a project, I want to know what it's going to look like on social media. That doesn't mean that if it doesn't look like or there's no way to create something that would work on social media, that we're not going to do it. But we're going to go in eyes wide open. Right. That this isn't something that's going to be sticky on social media. And we have to understand what that means. So I think that's really vital. And then the third thing is that, you know, as you were speaking to this, like there really isn't back end right now. No one's getting stupid rich off. You know, you're not going to make two and a half men and, you know, cash in 150, 200 million dollars. That's just not going to happen. I think the um, the challenge today is you have to be a volume player. You can't do one movie a year. You can't. I don't think you can even specialize in cinema. You have to be doing television we, we're now doing podcasting as well we'll see 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 if that's a sustainable business we have a deal right now so but you have to do it all i think you because if you're relying on only the cycle of one thing whether it's unscripted or scripted television or it it's just too challenging to get enough revenue in to sustain a company so it doesn't mean you have to start that way i mean the good news is when you're 25, 30, you don't have the same overhead issues as you do when you're, when you're older and you can start out doing less, you know, smaller things, but you have to diversify eventually. I think today it's just, it's just impossible to sustain in the old model. And also impossible, I feel, to sustain on your own. Like I, as somebody who's come up as a solo independent producer, most of my career, even I'm feeling that stress and that pressure of like, I don't, I can no longer sustain a volume business like you're talking about by myself, because if I'm sick or if I need to, for whatever else is happening in my life, if I don't show up and keep fighting and put that energy to push that boulder uphill, like it just, it's not going to move, you know, and no one cares. It's like, nobody's got time for your sad sob story. You know what I mean? So I think being in partnership with people, um, collaboration is really the name of the game as well. And I think people who are growing up in social media, I think get that to some extent, you know, they've come up, YouTubers and collaborating with the collabs, the collabs yeah, yeah. and the partnerships mm-hmm. and whatnot. But I'm curious to see what, how that's going to transition. If it, tra- how it transitions into a sustainable business model. Like you're saying, I'm curious as to what someone who spends all day on TikTok consuming super short form content, what a long form 
show looks like to them that they're actually interested in watching that is maybe not IP driven. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think we're all curious to see who's going to crack that formula. Um, and maybe there's, there's a whole new business model to be created there as well. So yeah. I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing a bit of your journey and your wisdom with me and the listeners. It's the community and the conversations. This is why I do it. It helps all of us stay the course um, because it is very hard out here in these streets, as we know. So anything to help yeah. us stay the course <laughs> is appreciated. So here's the lightning round. First question, what is a song that teleports you to a happy place? Anything by Bob Marley. What's the latest piece of art that moved you? It can be a book, a film, a show, anything. This is a long, a long time ago, but it moved me so much. Um, Hamilton was, to me, kind of one of the greatest pieces of art of the last 30 years. I've seen it five times. Great answer. Fill in the blank. When I'm overworked, blank helps ease the stress. Being with my children. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. Moving to Colombia when I was 22, for sure. Everything in my life that I have today comes directly from that choice in terms of my career and my life, and my wife and my children and my friends and my happiness. It all came from that choice. Okay, final question. And this is a fun question that borrows from inside the actor studio. It's inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pavot, and he always asks his guests at the end, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I'm real. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You did good. You left the earth a little better than you found it. Perfect timing as the camera zooms in on your son. (laughs) It's great to talk to you. Likewise. Keep doing the good work. Thank you so much, Ben. It's so nice to meet you. And I hope to run run into you out there in in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos.